Welcome, everybody, um, to uh, LSE for this evening's event. Um, my name is Emily Jackson. I'm head of the law department here at LSE. I'm absolutely delighted, as I'm sure you can imagine, to have the huge privilege of welcoming Wendy Brown to uh, speak at LSE on the hottest day in London ever, I think. Um, Wendy Brown needs no introduction, I'm sure, but um, Wendy's the class of 1936, first professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Wendy is one of the world's leading political theorists whose work on power, democracy, political identity and neoliberalism is uh, without equal. Wendy's written seven books, edited three more, and is the author of countless, uh, sorry, the author also of countless groundbreaking and exceptionally erudite articles. Wendy's been the recipient of an incredibly long list, which I'm not going to go into here, of awards and honours, and has held a number of distinguished visiting fellowships. And on top of all that, Wendy's an engaged and effective activist. So this evening, Wendy uh, will be speaking to us about the US Supreme Court's decision in Burwell and Hobby Lobby uh, and what happens to democracy when corporations become holders of civil liberties and rights. Um, Please make sure your phone's on silent. I think there might be a Twitter... um, thing there, whatever that's, that is. I'm not, I don't understand this myself, but if you are tweeting, I think it's LSE Brown, uh, if you want to tweet, please make sure your phone's on silent. Um, we're going to be recording this lecture, so hopefully it will be available as a podcast. There will also be a book signing of Wendy's new book, Undoing the Demos, outside afterwards. But now, will you please join me in warmly welcoming Professor Wendy Brown to LSE to deliver uh, her lecture this evening, When Firms Become Persons and Persons Become Firms. It's a great pleasure to be here, um, both to be here at LSE, to have uh, Emily introduce me, to see friends old and new in the audience. Um, I've had a wonderful two weeks as a visiting professor of law at LSE. Uh, I've been warmly welcomed. I've been intensely engaged, uh, sometimes really intensely, and um, I've learned a lot, so I thank you for that. Uh, I think this room is air-conditioned, so I think we won't be suffering the way that we have been in some other seminar rooms today. Um, What I want to do this evening is share some thinking about a Supreme Court decision, not the most recent one from the U.S. that everybody knows about, but one that came out last year called Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. It's one of a string of U.S. Supreme Court decisions that extends to commercial corporations the civil liberties historically associated with the equality, the freedom, the citizenship, and the dignity of persons. So what I'll do is outline the case very briefly, and then I'm going to suggest at some length different frames through which it might be analyzed, each of which I think contributes a piece of the picture, but each of which Um, has a limitation in it. And eventually what I'm going to do is try to draw those various strands into the frame that I think illuminates some really important features of our time. First, I need to give you an outline of the case. And if you're not from the U.S., you really need to hold on to your hats because every part of this case, the concern with contraception and abortion, our Byzantine organization of health care, the definition of a person... Every one of these things is going to seem bizarre to those beyond American shores. Okay, so here's the case. Last year, in a five-to-four decision, the Supreme Court ruled that 
Under the Affordable Care Act, which is the official name of what we call Obamacare, our weird system of national health care, owners of corporations cannot be forced to provide their employees with insurance coverage for contraceptives that offend the corporate owner's religious beliefs. Hobby Lobby is a national chain of craft stores. It filed the suit, and it was joined in the suit by another corporation called Conesta Wood Specialties. These are cabinet makers in Pennsylvania. Hobby Lobby is a craft store chain. Both corporations are what the court calls closely held as opposed to shareholder corporations. And both are owned and controlled by Christian families who believe that life begins at conception and that any contraceptive method destroying or preventing implantation of a fertilized egg is a sin against God. The plaintiffs argued that the requirement to provide health insurance that covered these contraceptive methods four in particular, would make them complicit in an act that they thought was sinful and thus abridge their right to religious freedom, a right guaranteed under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and known as the Free Exercise Clause. The plaintiffs objected specifically to four of the 18 contraceptive methods required by the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate. There's a contraception mandate in that act. And the, 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 the forms that they objected to were two forms of intrauterine devices, known as IUDs, and two forms of the morning-after pill, also known as Plan B. Now, the contraceptive mandate itself issues from a series of rulings that I'll talk about shortly in previous decades, wherein insurance companies that covered prescriptions while excluding birth control were found to be in violation of women's civil rights. So the Affordable Care Act required, by law, previous law, that contraception be included in the list of preventative services provided at no cost to patients. The decision. The majority opinion in Hobby Lobby found that the contraceptive mandate forced the plaintiffs into a choice. Either they violate their religious beliefs by funding contraceptive methods that they considered to be abortifacients, And this, of course, is a church view, but not a medical or scientific one. We might call it faith-based science. Or they would have to pay up to $475 million in penalties by violating the act in order to remain faithful to their beliefs. The majority ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, and they based an important part of their ruling on something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, commonly known as (coughs) REFRA. This 22-year-old piece of federal legislation has recently been imitated by many conservative states in the U.S. so that, and I'm sure many of you have heard of this, businesses may refuse service to customers seeking provisions for same-sex weddings, flowers, catering, cakes, and so forth. But the original federal RFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, had different origins. It was a retort to a 1990 Supreme Court ruling that religious groups can't claim exemption from neutral general general laws. Under RIFRA, if a law compromises your religious practice, you can claim an exemption, unless the government proves that the law is essential to advancing a compelling government interest. In deciding Hobby Lobby, the majority argued that the contraceptive mandate did not pass this test. 
Compelling interest was absent because under the Affordable Care Act, employers with less than 50 employees didn't have to provide insurance at all. Since such employees, along with those who are unemployed or underemployed or self-employed, weren't covered by the ruling, the majority suggested that the interest couldn't be all that compelling. And the additional claim that the government had to use the least restrictive means to enforce the law also was seen as not applying because the least restrictive means of providing employees cost-free access to the full range of contraception, the majority argued, was to have the government pay the contraceptive costs of employees of, of organizations or companies that asserted religious objections to these. I told you, entering the world of U.S. preoccupations with sin and um, corporate um, responsibility and connection to it was going to be an adventure. It's going to get more dramatic in a minute. The court also argued that for-profit companies should get the religious freedom accommodation already offered to non-profit religious organizations like churches and synagogues and so forth. One last feature of the decision is important to parse here before, or to reprise here before we dig in on the analysis, and that's how the uh, majority argued that um, corporations were persons. The extension of personhood to corporation, the basis on which corporations could have the free exercise of religion, was tied first to a definition in the 1873 Dictionary Act, where... Quote, the word person includes corporations, companies, associations, firms, partnerships, societies, and joint stock companies, as well as individuals. You can imagine what all of those things looked like to the authors of that 1873 Act, something rather different from what they look like today. But it was tied second to the fact that nonprofit corporations, like churches, have had standing with RIFRAs in a series of cases, and so the court argued no conceivable definition of the term person could include natural persons and nonprofit corporations, but exclude for-profit corporations. Okay, so what do we have? This extraordinary Supreme Court decision features the court's conferral of personhood to multi-billion dollar corporations in response to the plaintiff's attribution of personhood to fertilized eggs. That is, the decision grants free exercise of religion to hypostasized corporate persons to enable their protection of hypostasized egg persons. Meanwhile, recognizable homo sapiens, for whom the decision might be most consequential, impregnable women, are literally nowhere to be found in the pages of the majority opinion. Okay, how do we analyze it? There are a number of ways to read and analyze Hobby Lobby. There are lots of different political, jurisprudential, and doctrinal trends in which it can be placed. And as I said, what I want to do now is develop these as separate strands before integrating them into the frame that I think helps us understand how neoliberal jurisprudence is facilitating a specific set of evangelical conservative Christian aims in the U.S. today. So there are about six of these different paths that we could take to understand the decision, um, and I'm going to chase each one down for a few minutes and then get them integrated into the larger one. The first is the doctrinal path of religious exemptions. Until 1963, 
The free exercise clause of the First Amendment, that is the idea that you had the right to free exercise of religion without being impeded by the government, was not generally treated as a basis for exemption from federal law. Rather, it was simply construed as being free from harassment by the government or others in the private exercise of religious belief and practice. But in 63, in a case called Sherbert versus Werner, the court ruled that exemptions were required unless they compromised a compelling government interest. That was then reversed in the 1990 decision, Employment Division versus Smith, where interestingly, it was the liberal members of the court who dissented. They argued to preserve exemptions. But in 1993, Congress disagreed loudly with that decision when it passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which gave religious objectors a statutory right to exemptions where there was no compelling government interest for denying them. Again, this Religious Freedom Restoration Act, this REFRA, was not yet conservative backlash. It will become that eventually. It was voted into law by a nearly unanimous Congress. But worry arose that the exemptions granted now by the REFRA discriminated in favor of religion and against, for example, secular conscientious objections to certain law or policy. And that position was embodied in another Supreme Court decision in 2005, And then there was the question of just how far religious organizations could go in exempting themselves from things like employment law. That was tested in a 2012 case where the court unanimously supported the church's right to choose its own ministry over the plaintiff's claim that she was terminated due to disability-related discrimination. So the court upheld the idea that a corporation Uh, a religious corporation, um, expressly religious corporation like a church, could take itself away from mandates in employment law. There's a lot more to this history, but the unique chapter added by Hobby Lobby should be obvious. If for two decades Congress and the court have been leaning toward interpreting the free exercise clause as a basis of religious exemptions from law for individuals and for religious institutions, The radicalism of the Hobby Lobby decision involves extending that freedom to for-profit corporations. That's the really radical turn that this decision entails. Okay, so that's one doctrinal path we could follow. A second one we could call corporate and right-wing takeover of rights discourse, especially First Amendment discourse. John Coates IV, a professor of law and economics at Harvard, recently completed a study demonstrating empirically what was obvious to any newspaper-reading citizen. Corporations, he argues, and I'm quoting him, have increasingly and with growing speed displaced individuals as direct beneficiaries of First Amendment rights. But the striking thing about his study is that it was by a professor of business law who portrayed the development not only as bad law and bad politics, risking what he called the loss of a Republican form of government, but also bad for business and society. He said it reflected, and I'm quoting him, a form of socially wasteful rent-seeking, the use of legal tools by business managers to entrench regulation in their personal interests at the expense of shareholders, consumers, and employees, end quote. Other law scholars, more to the left of Coates, have offered convergent accounts with different political accent marks. In recent articles in The Nation and The New Republic, Tim Wu has decried what he calls the corporate takeover of the First Amendment. 
He puts it this way, once the patron saint of protesters and the disenfranchised, it's become the darling of economic libertarians and corporate lawyers who've recognized its power to immunize private enterprise from legal restraint. Another law scholar, Bert Newborn, argues that the trend to take over the First Amendment emerged in the 70s and the 80s because, and I'm quoting him, robust free speech protection fit neatly into the right's skeptical, deregulatory approach to government generally, and because it encouraged, and I'm still quoting him, vigorous transmission by powerful speakers of the right's newly energized collection of ideas. But in addition to empowering corporations to dominate the electoral process, which of course is what the infamous Citizens United decision did, extension of free speech to corporations has been especially useful to the most disparaged quarters of big business. It has allowed pharmaceuticals, tobacco, coal, industrial meat, and airline industries to make extensive use of free speech litigation to challenge advertising restrictions. Now, certainly Hobby Lobby fits this pattern, but it's not comprehended by it. That is, what's unexplained is the shift from backing neoliberal aims to Christian conservative aims. The shift from a jurisprudence aimed at enhancing the power of corporations to enhance their own um, capital-enhancing capacities through First Amendment rights, and the shift to a political religious project that is at best orthogonal to capital value or market positioning. Hobby Lobby's new fame as a Christian corporation, which it obtained when it won this case, may have given it a little brief bounce with a niche clientele, but for the most part, employee pregnancies and maternity leaves are just notoriously costly for business. So we need a deeper analysis of neoliberal jurisprudence than one that simply identifies neoliberalism with enhancing corporate power and enhancing profitability. The third doctrinal path we might look at to explain this decision, we could call a jurisprudence of aggrieved power. Coupled with the recent proliferation of religious freedom restoration acts in states concerned about federal legalization of same-sex marriage, and there are now at least 13 states that have these acts so that, they, so that businesses can legitimately refuse service to those they think are engaged in a sinful act, namely marrying if they're not so-called opposite sex. This case could be read in, in this way as a kind of rearguard action, not only against women's and gay rights, but also to the establishment of Obamacare itself. There's been unrelenting conservative opposition to each, so the Hobby Lobby decision could be read as empowering an older set of mores against a tide of ever more inclusionary, secular, and sexually permissive state policy and social practices. In other words, Hobby Lobby could be understood as securing the right to enact those older mores, both through a strategic libertarianism, strategic because those older mores are anything but libertarian, and a strategic separation of persons from acts. Remember, in these RIFRA uh, laws, it's not the homosexual but same-sex marriage that is permitted to be rejected by the baker who won't make a cake for the occasion. Just as it's not the employee but the birth control method against which Hobby Lobby seeks to discriminate. There's another strategic reversal here, one that challenges conventional ordinances of power and powerlessness, mainstream and margin, 
dominant and subordinate, as conservative Christians represent themselves in need of exemptions to laws or practices they see as embraced by the majority and codified in law. In what Jack Jackson calls a jurisprudence of aggrieved power, the assertion of conscience is central in performatively producing the claimants as a beleaguered minority requiring protection from the state and from a popular majority. Equally central to this inversion is the omission from the decision of any discussion of women's unique vulnerability in a gender division of labor within which women lack control over their sexual and reproductive existence. Only by framing the problem, as I suggested the majority opinion does, as an issue of religious conscience rather than gender equality can the power securing women's subordination appear beleaguered, minoritarian, hence in need of constitutional protection. Citizens United, which granted American corporations the unrestricted right to fund political campaigns through super PACs, performs some similar inversions and omissions there, Justice Kennedy wrote of corporate voices that are historically muffled by campaign restriction laws or censored by government regulations, rendering them akin to, as he put it, a disadvantaged person or class, deprived of the right to, quote, use speech to strive to establish their worth, standing, and respect as corporations. So categories aimed at securing equality and non-discrimination are here flipped And they're also swirled in a strange brew of anti-statism and moral authoritarianism to produce a novel class of the excluded, mega-corporations and the white working-class Christians whom those corporations so often exploit and deracinate. Of course, this has been precisely the unholy alliance at the heart of the Republican Party in the U.S. for more than 35 years. A fourth way that we might understand the decision could simply be called anti-feminist backlash. Hobby Lobby can be placed in the half-century-long pitched battle over reproductive freedom and especially abortion in the U.S., a battle that continually proliferates new tactics and strategies as it moves between Congress, the courts, and the streets, state and federal laws and funding sources, between clinics and schools, between municipal and national political organizations. Here, Hobby Lobby is part of the fight over a feminist freedom and equality rooted in women's control of their bodies and opposed by those for whom the female reproductive body is destiny and female sexuality is almost always already sinful. Hobby Lobby belongs to this history in two ways. First, just as the 1980 decision upholding uh, an amendment called the Hyde Amendment that blocked federal funding of abortions for poor women effectively defanged the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion legal in the U.S., so Hobby Lobby erodes the force of a 1965 decision saying that the state can't block access to contraception. So Hobby Lobby fits a pattern of legal seesawing between securing women's formal rights and then allowing those rights to be substantively undermined. This has included permitting abortion clinics to be hounded into closure, tolerating ever more stringent parental consent legislation, tolerating the requirement of mandatory waiting periods, pro-life counseling, 
mandatory ultrasounds, and all kinds of other ways of dissuading teenage girls from accessing contraception and all women from aborting unwanted pregnancies. But this brings us to the second way that the decision is a chapter in the history of struggle over reproductive freedom. Constitutional law scholars Riva Siegel and Douglas Najem argue that Hobby Lobby represents a novel recent strategy adopted by sexual conservatives fighting to sustain what they call patriarchal and heteronormative sexual mores. These scholars read the decision as part of an emerging trend in law and politics to establish what they term complicity-based conscience claims as part of a long-term effort to shape community-wide norms. Their research reveals the extent to which these seemingly personal individual claims are developed and mobilized by movement leaders and endorsed by the Republican Party, producing coalitions that reach across denominational lines, especially Catholic and Evangelical Protestant, and even across religious and secular convictions. Complicity-based conscience claims, they show, are a carefully conceived strategy in the culture wars when the tide of law has moved against enforcement of socially conservative values. But, they argue, these claims should not be misread as political or legal retreat. Rather, like the expanded use of health care refusals, hospital staff who refuse to participate in abortions, but expanding those now to include those who might be processing intake forms or insurance forms or provisioning supplies, like expanding the use of those health care refusals, these complicity-based conscience claims aim at broadly influ- influencing communities and literally driving out certain practices. But they do so under the sign of religious pluralism, religious liberty, conscience, again, borrowing tools of the liberal left for projects of the right. But according to Najem and Siegel, what sets these complicity-based conscience claims apart from other petitions for exemption on the basis of religion or conscience is their direct bearing on relations with third parties. For example, in contrast with Jewish or Muslim Sabbath work exemptions or Mennonite exemptions from public schooling or Salafi or Sikh exemptions concerning beards and professions that prohibit them, these complicity-based conscience claims aim to withdraw tolerance of practices by others to which the claimant objects. In other words, they aim to withdraw endorsement or tolerance of of, um, particular practices rather than simply to withdraw into one's own little world. They aim as well at displacing harms and costs entailed by assertions of conscience onto others. So put another way, in contrast to traditional liberal conscience claims, which seeks simply to withdraw from select social relations or practices in order to keep one's faith, these claims entail actively asserting or inserting one's faith into social relations. So as a political strategy, they're not acts of withdrawal at all. They're actually intended to be aggressive and disruptive, just as the fight to preserve segregation was. But unlike that fight, which was a manifest form of solidaristic action protecting a white community norm, complicity-based conscience claims are asserted as expressions of individual conscience protected by and protecting religious pluralism. This is their brilliance and their perversity. 
Just as they invoke liberty to bid for moral authoritarianism, they invoke religious pluralism to refuse tolerant coexistence with practices that they loathe. Moreover, as we'll see, they produce a new set of demands on the state, rekindling the welfarist role that neoliberal and libertarian reason rejects. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, the next doctrinal trend that I want to identify, I have two more. One is civic equality conferred to the market where it becomes inequality. Still another way of framing the case would place it in a line of Roberts Court decisions where the courts confer power to markets to undo state-mandated equality. Here's how this goes. Although the 1968 Griswold decision rooted unhindered access to corporation in a couple's right to privacy, the 1978 Pregnancy Discrimination Act set out a bolder course. It identified discrimination on the basis of pregnancy as discrimination on the basis of sex, discrimination against women. And that act was the basis of the 2000 ruling that I've already mentioned that companies whose employee insurance accepted birth control from pharmaceutical coverage were discriminating against women. And that's why the contraception mandate was in the Obamacare law in the first place. However, in permitting corporations a role in determining the accessibility of contraception, that equality right is undermined. One sees this very clearly in Justice Alito's highly selective narrative of precedent on women's right to obtain birth control and abortions in Hobby Lobby. On the one hand, his opinion never mentions Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood v. Casey or any of the doctrinal path just discussed. On the other, what he draws from Griswold v. Connecticut, that original right to access contraception, is not women's right to that access, but a right shared, as he puts it, by all. These combined moves of omission and emphasis convert contraceptive access from an equality right to a consumer right. Access becomes about the non-interference of the state in a market, not about securing equality for a disenfranchised or subordinated class. Similarly, those potentially harmed by Hobby Lobby are always referred to, as I said, simply as individuals or persons. Women nowhere appear in the decision as those especially capable of being burdened or harmed. So this move achieves at a jurisprudential level what neoliberal rationality does more generally, namely erases an entire analytics of social power, subordination, and inequality from political understanding and from the law based on it. But what of that backstop in the form of the state? Hobby Lobby's claim is found by the court not to violate women's access to contraception because the state is deemed available to pick up the tab refused by Christians wishing not to be complicit in sin. So this leads us to another possible framing for the case, one in which neoliberalized states increasingly absorb costs of the whims, speculations, effluence, and financial risks of private corporations, a phenomenon commonly dubbed as socialization of cost, privatization of gain by its critics. 
It's an especially fascinating move in this case, though, because ensuring that this exercise of conscience doesn't formally infringe the rights of others requires both the welfare state reviled by neoliberals and the secular state reviled by evangelical Christians. So the social disintegration produced by the neoliberal social contract generates a spectacular irony. On the one hand, Hobby Lobby seeks to act like a miniature Christian state, perhaps to produce a miniature Christian nation in determining the moral provisions by which its uh, principles by which it provisions for its employees. On the other, the firm requires the secular state whose secular mandates it seeks to escape. It needs the state to secure and protect its right to exercise its religious freedom. And it needs the providing state to infill gaps left by its actions or those of others. Moreover, to depend on the providing state without being caught in a hopeless contradiction, Hobby Lobby has to disavow complicity in enabling state provision of contraception to which it objects through its tax contributions. That is, Hobby Lobby has to say that its tax contributions are not enabling the sin that it's trying to become clean of. Here's how that disavowal works. While conscience is being asserted in relation to certain loathsome acts, same-sex marriage, birth control, abortion, the complicity of corporate and state action is anchored in monetary consumption or investment. That is, Hobby Lobby owners seek to avoid paying for insurance that in turn pays for the sinful contraceptive methods. They do not seek to prevent the sin itself. The theological and economic cross-hatching here is really worth pausing over. Conscientious objectors to IUDs and Plan B seek to remove themselves from an economic chain, pharmaceutical, insurer, insurance plan purchaser, employee. They seek to remove themselves from that chain so as not to touch the sin with their money, or more precisely, so as not to have their money touch the sin. This identification of one's virtue with one's investment or one's purchases is key to the claim and the decision and resonates with this ubiquitous identification in neoliberal capitalism today. As you all know, corporations brand themselves through green practices or profit diversions to charity. Consumers and investors aim to save their individual souls through allocating or withholding their funds whether buying local or consuming ethical fashion or fair trade coffee or boycotting goods from the West Bank and socially responsible investing. Far from supplementing the market with virtue, these practices monetize and market virtue. I'm sorry. Far from supplementing the market with virtue, these practices monetize and marketize virtue. Invest in your principles, or brand them. Divest from your revulsions, or those of your target consumers. But for markets to be arenas where political ethical battles are fought through branding, investment, and consumption, markets must be radically free. They cannot be rigged. They cannot be regulated. The contraception mandate is presented as precisely such a rigging, so it must be set aside or fulfilled elsewhere, and in Hobby Lobby, that elsewhere is the state. This last turn takes us toward the frame I now want to propose for the decision, in which, as I said, elements from each of those thus far will be woven into one that comprehends the decision 
as producing a neoliberalized society and polity through neoliberal jurisprudence. I'm not suggesting that the decision be wholly reduced to this project. I'm suggesting that this is the jurisprudence that structures the anti-feminism, the sexual conservatism, the evangelicalism, and the undermining of equality with markets, the inverted meaning and inverted purpose of civil rights that we've considered thus far. So, what do I have in mind? The extension of civil rights to corporations in the U.S. through a series of decisions constitutes part of the neoliberal transformation of democracy through rights adjudication. This is a complex, multi-pronged project that involves both extending civil rights to non-persons and deregulating orbits in which rights are exercised. Both of these are important. One crucial effect of this project is, of course, intensification of inequality across the board. When big, powerful entities gain rights in a pool of small, weak ones, the big, powerful entities' power is amplified and the small become more diminished and vulnerable. A second important effect is expansion of the social and political capacities of big capital, whether by enlarging its influence in electoral politics as Citizens United, McCutcheon, Bellotti, a number of other decisions do, or by restoring 19th century practices of employer control over the moral choices and physical health of employees, as Hobby Lobby does. A third effect, and the one I'm really interested in, is de-democratization. The diminishment of the meaning and exercise of rule by the demos, and the importance of rights historically to securing at least the promise of that rule. When the powers conferred to citizens by something like the Bill of Rights are extended to the most powerful entities in contemporary society, and remember, 37 of the world's 100 wealthiest economies, 37 of the world's 100 wealthiest economies are for-profit corporations. When rights are extended to those most powerful entities, the capacity of rights to enable the rule of the people isn't simply diluted, it's actually reversed. When rights aimed at protecting citizens against consolidated power, which, when the Bill of Rights was penned, was imagined only as the nation-state, when rights aimed at protecting citizens against consolidated power and aimed at facilitating some modest form of popular rule are conferred to corporations, they literally undermine both aims, both the aims of protecting citizens against consolidated power, because now those consolidated powers have those rights, and those, the aim of rights to facilitate popular rule. And when corporations that rival states in wealth and influence are granted the legal status of mega-citizens, they acquire power to rule from a position that is both unaccountable, they're not states, and undemocratic. What's unfolding today thus imperils, in my view, whatever remains of both state sovereignty and rule by the people in U.S. democracy. So that much is fairly obvious, but what's the new common sense that enables and legitimizes this judicial reasoning, this radical transfer of power? Here we need to remember that neoliberal rationality is an order of normative reason that doesn't simply boost or deregulate capital. It formulates every sphere of endeavor, every institution, every practice, and human beings themselves exclusively and exhaustively in market terms. Within this rationality, all activities are market activities, all domains of life are markets. 
We're not talking about mere extension of commodification here. Given the imbrication, especially of financialization with neoliberalism, commodities are hardly the point. Rather, within neoliberal rationality, the person is figured as homo economicus all the way down and in every orbit of existence, including political life, social life, and ethical life. This is its novelty. This is the novelty of neoliberalism, that in its mode of reason, we are only and everywhere homo economicus. A second novelty pertains to the ethos of contemporary homo economicus, which is shaped by the protean nature of economies themselves and recent changes in capitalism in particular. Homo economicus today is no longer Adam Smith's wily dealmaker or Bentham's pleasure pain calculator or even the entrepreneurial figure of early neoliberalism. Homo economicus today is a bit of capital, striving to enhance its competitive position and its portfolio value across every endeavor and domain. It's a really compressed version of a really long argument, but I've given you enough, I think, to be able to launch now into a thinking through of the decision. This remaking of personhood as financialized human capital in all spheres of life, whether choosing a mate or a publisher or an investment plan or designing a program of study or designing a Facebook profile. This remaking of personhood as a bit of financialized human capital everywhere is what facilitates the extension of personhood to corporations. As capital, as bits of human capital, people come to share the same aims as firms. People are construed as miniature firms miniature little bits of capital. As capital, people and firms share the same aims, the same conduct, and the same mandate. What are those? Enhance competitive positioning, maximize rating and ranking to attract investors, increase future value. My argument, then, is that persons become little capitals or firms before firms become persons. Neoliberal economization of all existence is what reconfigures the person as capital, which in turn makes personhood very easily extendable to corporations. This thoroughgoing economization of the person, the social and the political, also transforms the meaning and the exercise of rights. When rights bearers are figured as market actors everywhere, And when all domains are conceived as markets, what recedes to the point of vanishing are the distinctly political, ethical, civil valences and venues of rights. Rights for purposes and spheres other than capital enhancement or for non-market formulations of political or ethical life. The rights conferred upon and interpreted for homo economicus thus cease to be interpreted as securing things like political equality or political freedom or popular sovereignty, let alone Kantian dignity. None of these things pertain to homo economicus. None of them are legible in the marketized orbits in which homo economicus moves. One can see the account that I have just offered extremely clearly in Justice Kennedy's insistence in the Citizens United decision that, as he puts it, all votes and dollars in the political marketplace 
are seeking to purchase polit particular political outcomes. That's why one votes. That's why one contributes to a campaign, because one is, in fact, trying to acquire or purchase a particular political outcome. But one can see this formulation as well in Justice Alito's formulation in the decision we've been considering, Hobby Lobby, when he formulates conscience as practiced through market choices. In both decisions, the realms of political and ethical values are marketplaces. Positions are appropriately fought out through market strategies. Although conscience, religious belief, and political positions are only sometimes monetized in a neoliberal order, they're relentlessly marketized. So I'm arguing for reading Hobby Lobby, and I'm going to do a little reading of it in a second, as one of a series of recent decisions that remakes both personhood and rights through neoliberal reason, rather than simply seeing it as favoring corporations by granting them rights intended for persons. The difference here really matters. In these decisions, on the one hand, rights are construed as capital rights rather than as civic or political rights. On the other hand, civic, political, and ethical life are themselves economized, construed as marketplaces appropriately deregulated like any other. Again, you can see this very vividly in Citizens United, where a key question before the court was whether winners in the economic marketplace, corporations, those who had a lot of wealth, could operate unimpeded in what Kennedy called the political marketplace, by which he meant electoral representative democracy. Kennedy acknowledged that those dominant in the economic market will likely bring that power to bear in the political marketplace. But, he says, even if amassed wealth can be mobilized to influence election outcomes, marketplaces must be left free of government interference and free of practices of equalization. All markets, no matter how they overlap, no matter how they affect one another, must be left to work on their own. So, in Citizens United, political speech, far from being a delicate, corruptible medium for public persuasion that needs to be protected from monopolization, becomes in the political marketplace an unhindered capital right. But isn't conscience and the religious liberty based on it different from speech? Don't conscience and faith epitomize whatever remains unique to natural persons? It, aren't conscience and, speak, uh, conscience and religion something that has to be understood as something you hold personally, even soulfully, something that can't be marketized without being lost? Doesn't the free exercise clause stand out as the element of the First Amendment that's unconquerable by neoliberal rationality, as I have just compressed it? This conquest is precisely the one that Justice Alito achieves in Hobby Lobby, and he does it through a brilliant three-pronged strategy concerning the nature and the aims of corporations. First, as we've seen a long time ago now, he cites from the 1873 Dictionary Act to define persons. That's not the interesting move. But second, paralleling and departing from Kennedy's account of of corporations as associations of citizens. That's how Kennedy depicts corporations in Citizens United. Alito formulates a corporation as, and I'm quoting him, simply a form of organization used by human beings to achieve desired ends. Sounds like my social science colleagues. 
The divergence from citizens rests in depicting corporations as instruments of their owners, not associations of all. Alito also suggests that what makes corporations persons is that they're animated by live persons, including their employees. So is he saying corporations are instruments of the owners or are they associations of the whole? The tension unfolds in a key paragraph on corporate protection, where Alito begins by listing ways that corporations protect the privacy and fiduciary interests of everyone, and then tosses away that populist gesture to reach the strong conclusion that only the civil liberties of the owners are at issue. So we're going to parse that paragraph now. Okay, here we go. This is Alito. Congress provided protection for people like the Hans and the Greens, those are the two owners of the two Christian corporations, by employing a familiar legal fiction, and it included corporations within REFRA's definition of persons. But it's important to keep in mind that the purpose of this fiction is to provide protection for human beings. A corporation is simply a form of organization used by human beings to achieve desired ends. So thus far, Alito appears to be identifying corporate personhood and its rights under RIFRA exclusively with the owners. They are the ones protected by and using the corporate form for desired ends. But then he makes this turn. An established body of law specifies the rights and obligations of the people, including shareholders, officers, and employees associated with the corporation in one way or another. When rights, whether constitutional or statutory, are extended to corporations, the purpose is to protect the rights of these people. So everybody's in the picture now. For example, Extending Fourth Amendment protection to corporations protects the privacy interests of employees and others associated with the company. Protecting corporations from government seizure of their property without just compensation protects all those who have a stake in the corporation's financial well-being. Okay, so now Alito's going out of his way to identify the civil rights awarded to corporations with all the individuals that it houses or subtends, from janitors to shareholders. Each is presumed to have an interest in what certain rights secure. But then Alito makes a sharp turn in another direction. And protecting the free exercise rights of corporations like Hobby Lobby protects the religious liberty of the humans who own and control these companies. Hold on. I just have to find my place in... There we go. Okay, so now we're back to rights as capital rights. Corporate personhood rights as instruments of their owners. Still, immediately after making this move, Alito slides it back under the rug. He retorts to a Third Circuit opinion that corporations by themselves don't pray, worship, observe sacraments, or take other religiously motivated actions separate and apart from the intention of their individual actors... That's a Third Circuit opinion that he wants to demolish, and what he says is corporations separate and apart from the human beings who own, run, and are employed by them can't do anything at all. So here, the personhood of corporations is generalized again, no longer identified with ownership. But this move seems more flourish than foundation, given Alito's express conferral of rights on the humans who, as he put it above, own and control corporations. 
The ambiguous alignment of the personhood of corporations with their owners or with all of the human beings under their roof is resolved by a third prong of the court's strategy to marketize the free exercise clause. And that is a move to identify corporations with causes and profit, causes and purposes that exceed profit, thus giving corporations a kind of soul or conscience requiring constitutional protection. Here's how this goes. Alito argues, while it's certainly true that a central objective of for-profit corporations is to make money, modern corporate law does not require for-profit corporations to pursue profit at the expense of everything else, and many do not do so. Corporations support a wide variety of charitable causes, and, he says, taunting the left, may further humanitarian and other altruistic objectives, including pollution control and labor practices that exceed local legal requirements. He concludes, if for-profit corporations may pursue such worthy objectives, why not religious objectives as well? The replacement of religious belief or religious exercise with religious objectives is really crucial. That's the move that renders conscience in market and evangelical terms and thus facilitates a specifically marketized form of evangelicalism. That's the move that shifts the classic secular Protestant understanding of conscience from something that is held personally, privately, above all individually, as a way of securing one's own relationship with God and the afterlife, and converts it to something aggressively advanced in a marketplace of competing aims. That's the move that simultaneously iterates the neoliberal economization of religious life and the Protestant evangelicalization of the free exercise clause. This is the move that converts a religiously-based legal exemption into a religious power enhanced and exercised by the corporate form. It's what converts the free exercise of personal belief into a strategy for advancing those beliefs as objectives, objectives of the corporation, and consolidates the status of the corporation as the owner's instrument. As I suggested earlier, Alito's reasoning also depends on the increasingly aligned orientation and conduct of firms and individuals, the increasingly aligned orientation and conduct of nonprofits and for-profits, of universities and hospitals, of states and startups. In a neoliberal order, each combines, again, competitive positioning and attractiveness to investors with other ends, which, from sustainability to justice, are themselves often pursued to enhance capital value or target niche markets. Profit diversion to charity, green or ethical capitalism, simply being a corporation that cares, has become crucial market strategy. Individuals brand and promote themselves in the same ways. This value-enhancing conduct common across individual and corporate forms of capital unties the free exercise clause from persons in one direction. Interpretation of this conduct as the right to pursue religious objectives in a sphere of competing objectives, which marketizes the practice of religious belief, unties the free exercise 
clause from persons in another direction. At this point, we need to integrate into the analysis what Najem and Siegel revealed as the comprehensive political strategy behind conscience-based complicity claims. On their face, remember, these claims seem to seek protection for a minority viewpoint in a pluralist world, a privately held religious belief. In fact, what they reminded us is that these claims are a political weapon in a battle for the soul of a nation and for every soul that evangelical Christianity aims to convert. Borrowed from the anti-abortion movement, these claims are part of an organized campaign to preserve traditional norms. They make use of the tools of liberalism, pluralism, rights, liberties, conscience, to challenge emerging norms of liberal orders, non-traditional gender, sexuality, identity practices, and they do so through the concept of complicity. Monetizing and including corporations in complicity-based conscience claims aren't mere bonuses for this campaign. They transform the playing field. Monetizing. Expanding complicity beyond local personal relations requires what Marx called the great confounding and compounding power of money. Hobby Lobby is estimated to be worth more than $5 billion. It has annual sales of $3 billion. Corporatizing. To be more than the individual plaint of a lone resistor or lone, lone group of resistors, the campaign requires the corporate form, another multiplier and extender. Hobby Lobby provisions health insurance for over 28,000 employees and their adult, teenage, and child dependents. So it provisions health insurance for likely upwards of 100,000 people. A neoliberalizing jurisprudence that economizes every sphere and activity transforms civil liberties into capital rights for human and corporate capital alike. This in turn enlarges the power of corporate ownership in religious and political domains, giving such ownership its rights twice over, first as persons, the owners, the Hans, the Greens, and then as corporate owners, or in the case of Hobby Lobby, it multiplies those rights 100,000 times over. More than extended, private ownership, of course, is also protected through the corporate form. So neoliberal jurisprudence permits owners a shield for their personal assets and the capacity to extend the sweep and reach of their sword from behind that shield. Dressed in their new rights-bearing swag, corporations literally become megapersons, difficult to wound, increasingly unbound in their social, political, and economic influence. Symbolically, civil rights conferred upon corporations confer civic political being and belonging. They enlarge the personas of corporations as political and civic actors. Concretely, such rights multiply the political powers of corporations and extend their capacity for social control. The Hobby Lobby decision, remember, permitted owners not only to rebuke the contraceptive mandate of Obamacare, but to extend that rebuke into a power over their employees. Similarly, the Citizens United decision permitted corporate billions to monopolize the media during an electoral season, reducing citizen voices to a whisper, and reducing as well the capacity of any candidate standing for national office to possibly remain independent of corporate sponsorship. The move I'm suggesting overwhelms liberal democracy at both ends, citizenship and representation. All right, I want to take one to two final minutes to 
Consider the importance of rights to the neoliberalization of political, economic, and social life by way of a minor quarrel with Foucault. So those of you who thought, I thought Wendy Brown was a political theorist, and here she's been carrying on about rights and gender and women and constitutions and so forth. We'll do political theory now for one and a half minutes. Here goes. In the 1978-79 Collège lectures, Foucault argued what remains constant across liberal and neoliberal formations is the place of rights as one of two legitimate limits on government, the market being the other. So Foucault's argument, rights iterate the limit on government constituted by what he calls the subject of law, homo juridicus or homo legalis. The epistemological unknowability of the economy, as he puts it, constitutes the limit on government established by homo economicus. He says these two are heterogeneous. They're divided. I want to suggest that that is no longer so. What if homo juridicus is wholly pressed into the service of homo economicus in a neoliberalized order? That's what Foucault, understandably, could not picture at the time of his 1978 lectures, but it constitutes a crucial blindness. For Foucault, the subject of right and the subject of interest, homo juridicus and homo economicus, are governed by completely heterogeneous logics, two different modalities, two different foundations of personhood. The subject of right, he argues, is never pure. It's always a divided subject. It's agreed to a certain self-renunciation in making the social contract, where the state gets some of that subject's power, even as the rights-bearing subject, in turn, sets some limits to the state. So that's homo juridicus. Homo economicus never makes that kind of deal. The subject of interest, Foucault says, is never called on to relinquish his interest. So, he writes, you've got two different kinds of subjects who cannot be superimposed on each other. They have an essentially different relationship with political power, quote, unquote. To the argument that homo economicus is built of fundamentally different material from homo juridicus, is regarded differently by the state, and never makes any kind of deal with the state, Foucault adds that in the liberal conceptualization, the economy itself can't be governed by the state because, he says, in liberal governmentality, the economy cannot be known. So this makes homo economicus doubly free of sovereign power, free because of a a contract based on its free pursuit of interest and free because it operates in a domain that is supposed to remain untouched by the state because it cannot be known by the state. Here's what Foucault represents homo economicus as implicitly saying to the sovereign. Quote, you cannot touch me because you do not know the domain of the economy, and you do not know because you cannot know. Hence, concludes Foucault, political economy is able to present itself as a critique of governmental reason. In liberal and neoliberal rationality, government must not restrict or interfere with homo economicus or the economy, Although government, including law, may be essential to organizing and facilitating the economy, but it can't reach in and mess with it. Now, here it seems to me Foucault articulates rightly the essence of the neoliberal assault on governmental restriction, on governmental regulation in the name of freedom. And that's the assault that is apparent in a number of the U.S. Supreme Court's decisions over the past 15 years. But what Foucault doesn't track is the implications of the neoliberal rationality that he identified so presciently, 
The figuring of all the world in market terms. The figuring of subjects as only and everywhere market actors. The mobilization of law for bringing about this order. When these developments become robust, as they have in the U.S. Supreme Court today, rights themselves become interpreted through a market frame as capital-enhancing tools for every kind of capital in every kind of marketplace. And in this way, homo juridicus is dissolved into homo economicus. And the critique of governmental reason represented by homo economicus becomes the very basis of rights adjudication. The moral political status and legitimizing function of rights is appropriated literally for markets. Gone is what Foucault called the absolutely heterogeneous status of these two figures. They're essentially different relationship with political power. And that vanishing, I want to suggest, takes with it the distinctive potential of civil and political rights for citizens. Not only individual equality and liberty, but for a demos modestly empowered against what might otherwise dominate it. Thanks. Thank you so, so much, Wendy. That was, that was fantastic. Um, we've got a few minutes for uh, questions. Um, so if anybody would like to put their hand up, I believe we have... Do we have uh, microphones? So if you could wait for the microphone to arrive. There's a hand here. Um, if you want to say your name and if you want to where you're from before asking your question. Hi, my name's Bronwyn Manby. I'm a visiting fellow here at the Centre for the Study of... Could you maybe be quiet over there while, so we can hear the question, please? My name is Bronwyn Manby. I'm a visiting fellow here at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. Um, the good thing for those of us who are interested in international human rights is that your argument is a discussion in America about the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, and we can say, "Phew, you know, yeah. that's it's nothing to do with us." Famous, famously, the U.S. doesn't believe in international human rights applied domestically. However. The guiding principles, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights are, have been, their drafting has been moderated by an American, John Ruggie, and have been heavily criticised of being rather weak on the human rights oversight of business. And my question is, to what extent do you think these arguments are going to enter into the international human rights discussions around these questions as well? Um, any other hands up? Maybe just do that one and I'll gather some more. Yes, got you. Okay. Um, so I can't predict, obviously, but I do think um, there's a risk. And I think the, the risk is not so much about how much Americans out of the Chicago law and economics world um, come in to specific human rights tribunals or commissions or constitution-making and so forth, but how much this kind of reasoning disseminates without, as it were, specific agents or um, uh, missionaries for it. And one of the things that I have noticed in the U.S. case, and so I'm not going to be able to talk about the international human rights situation, but just talk about what I think the danger is, is that the so-called liberals on the Supreme Court have not woken up to this problem. They don't see, they think they're fighting conservatives. 
they think they're fighting religious conservatives. They think they're fighting people who are pro-corporate. They don't actually, when you read the dissents in these cases, which come from the liberals, they're not, um, they're not hitting back. At, at the problem. They're, they're, they're angry about corporations being granted personhood. They're angry, as Justice Ginsburg was, about women not appearing anywhere in this decision. But they're unable to actually slug away at the kind of um, analysis that we explored here. So I, I think, um, you know, as you say, this is a, 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 a a U.S. problem having to do with a 5-4 majority in part, but it's also a problem that I think has to do with neoliberal reason seeping into a good deal of liberal juridical thought without it being named as such. So part of the reason I'm doing this work is not just to retort to it, but to try to surface it for those committed to rights work that has either to do with protecting the most vulnerable, or that has to do with producing the grounds um, for democratic self-governance. And so that's not an answer to how much of a risk there is, but what I think the risk rests in uh, is in what I would call the quotidian nature of the reasoning now in American political and legal life, rather than in a couple of bad guys. Okay, we've got two more hands up. I'm going to take those questions. If you can make them quite brief, and then we'll, Wendy will have the last word at the back there. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Valentina, and I'm a PhD student at the Indiana University in Constitutional Design Theory, uh, so that was quite an interesting. Um, I wanted to ask whether the homo economist, which you so perfectly described as this emerging subjectivity, has gender. And if so, um, as feminists, queer, or whatever else in between we tend to be these days, um, where do we take our efforts next? And then there's another question here. If you want to, if you want, here, yes, if um, that pass the. Um, do, do you actually think that there is a, a maybe an Ailito's uh, description? Uh, I mean, there's traditionally been some frustration with the fact that for profits actually really only have one duty, which is actually their fiduciary responsibility to, to maximize profit, and that, and that within that it's actually difficult. I mean, we've seen the, group, yeah, the, the growth of benefit corporations, etc. cetera. Um, but it's difficult to actually allow for sort of broader aims within the for-profit paradigm that he's actually speaking, it seems, to a much broader opportunity in terms of, okay, it's, it, it looks uh, retrogressive and not progressive. But is there something in there of an opportunity to actually move forward corporate law? Do you see, broadly speaking, a shift of, of kind of civil towards criminal in terms of actually people who are cut out of uh, the, the, the sort of the, the broader economic landscape that they're actually, they only really exercise within, a, within potentially a criminal uh, framework? As, as the corporate has shifted towards the civil? Um, so the question of homo economicus and gender is actually one that I... Oh, I have to stand up. Sorry. Um, it's actually one that um, I had to face when writing about homo economicus and homo politicus in a recent book. And... Um, 
I think it, the answer, as is often the answer these days with gender, is that it both does and doesn't. Um, it certainly doesn't for um, the neoliberal theorists of human capital, and um, which isn't to say they don't deal with sex difference and gender. They do extensively and um, in some challenging ways. Um, but that human capital as such does not have a gender, and homo economicus as such does not have a gender as it's theorized and as it appears in neoliberal rationality. Does it in fact? Yes. And um, I'm not going to try to spell that out right now, um, and I'm not also going to tell you to read the book. I'm going to say that um, I think it's a kind of long story, one that both elaborates from the way in which the figure of liberal homo economicus and homo politicus both had a gender that has to do with a sexual division of labor, a sexual division of attributes, what, what's visible, what's invisible in work, and um, what kind of figure of autonomy and self-enhancing value um, is what, what the masculinism is of that figure. But at the same time, I think it's actually been intensified. And one way that it's been intensified, of course, is the demolition of all the infrastructure that supported what we might call care work or the non-waged work of reproducing existence, supporting families, all the infrastructure that we used to call part of the welfare state. And the demolition of that, of course, has intensified the responsibility of the invisible, ungendered, female character who is responsible now for herself and her family um, in an ever more isolated and privatized way. That's the really short version. There is a longer version somewhere. Um, And it begins with exactly that question. Does homo economicus have a gender? Okay. I want to answer your first question. I think I will only mangle the second one, so I'm not going to touch it. But the first question, um, which has to do with the extension, with the, with the embroidering of for-profit corporations as something that are understood to have fiduciary aims, but not only fiduciary aims. I want to suggest that what Alito and his uh, brethren are drawing on here is an increasing, is a picture of capital today that is understood to have to enhance its value, not simply pursue profit, but enhance its value, which is the nature of a financialized bit of capital. It has to engage in value enhancement, not just profit pursuit, through self-investment and attracting investors. And so the very figure of the corporation or anything else as having a, a multiple ways of engaging in that enhancement of value, which is, of course, exactly what caring corporations and profit diversion to charity and green corporations and all of that are doing. That's all part of enhancing value. Um, regardless of exactly how it hits the bottom line, that he's actually just mirroring that back to us. So I know your question wasn't entirely about sort of where it's coming from, but I want to tell the story of where it's coming from in order to be able to say something about why I think he's absolutely right to be erasing the line between the conduct of a corporation that's for-profit, non-profit, NGO, church, 
human, etc., that all of them are in fact configured today as engaged in a variety of practices aimed at value enhancement in uh, the world of financialized human capital. Do, does it make for bad law? Yes, of course it makes for bad law, because one of the things it's doing is erasing the line between civil rights, human rights, political rights, oriented toward, aimed at empowering individuals and corporate law. But I certainly understand why it's unfolding and what it's, what it's enacting. It's enacting um, the, the law that actually mirrors back what's happened in a financialized and neoliberalized order of, of, of humanity and markets. That was a really quick and unsatisfying brush at your question. Should we take one more? I think we don't have time. Okay. I think um, we're, we're out of time for that because um, Wendy's going to be available for some minutes outside. If anybody would like to buy the wonderful book, I will say read it. Um, doing the demos. Uh, It's outside and she'll be available to sign them for a few minutes. It's been a huge privilege to hear your wonderful lecture. So I hope you'll join me um, in warmly thanking Wendy for a marvellous lecture. Thank you.